This is The Guardian. Today, millions of us use them, but how private are period tracking apps? Twenty-eight days is, give or take, the average length of a menstrual cycle, but everybody is different and periods aren't always predictable. Stress, diet, weight loss, they're all factors among others that can affect how long someone's period lasts or whether it stops altogether. And while some people get little discomfort, for others the pain is debilitating. And so around the world, millions of women have downloaded apps to help them track their periods and help them understand their bodies. Yeah, I guess a weird thing is I can now like feel when I'm ovulating because I can check. It shows you and I'm like, oh, sometimes I feel that or like my moods or other things or just a feeling of like you're in touch with your body a bit more and you know where you are. Because I've been on contraceptives now since I was 18 and I'm now 26 and I'd like to know what my mood is like, what my body is like without being on them. Others find that the apps help them understand how their cycle is affecting their mental health. It told you a little bit about how you would feel on particular days throughout your period and I suffer a bit from anxiety and it helped me to track, particularly when I was pre-menstrual, how that might be impacting my anxiety. There are tens of free-to-use period tracking apps on the market that have undoubtedly helped women to feel empowered in the choices they make about their sex lives and fertility. What's less clear is what the owners of these apps are doing with the intimate data that people are sharing with them. Do you remember when you downloaded it, whether you looked at the terms and conditions? Nope, I did not. Like, the, I, I definitely didn't. I'm not going to lie. Is that something you've ever thought about? <laughs> no, but I mean, to be fair, I just feel like anything on the internet these days are just free game for everyone. But I haven't thought about that. But I, I don't know if it's that. I mean, I guess it is sensitive information, but what can you do? <laughs> in the US, the overturning of Roe versus Wade means women in at least 12 states can be prosecuted for seeking an abortion. And privacy campaigners there are worried that law enforcement officers might use this type of data in court. So what are these app providers doing to help keep our information safe? And to what extent is the power in our own hands? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, should I delete my period tracking app? Joanna Buya, you're a senior tech reporter for The Guardian US, and you've had a look at several of the main period tracking apps. They've been around for quite a few years now. When did period tracking apps really start to get popular? Period tracking apps got pretty popular about 10 or so years ago when the first really, really big app got a ton of funding. Meet Glow, the ultimate women's health app. Track your cycle and get in touch with your reproductive health. That app was created by one of the co-founders of PayPal, Max Levchin. Something like 10 million couples or 10 million women are trying to have a child. One out of every seven will actually run into some form of infertility. So 
So at that point, he he was able to raise twenty three million dollars in funding for an app called Glow, and Glow was specifically targeted folks who are trying to get pregnant at the time, and so. At you know, just any time sector of the tech industry, particularly a new sector, gets that much funding, you're going to start seeing a, just a boom of investment because people are recognizing that oh, this is actually a market that one maybe untapped and two offers quite a bit of opportunity. Um, so since then, we've seen just a ton of apps pop up. Why are these apps so popular? What's the advantage of using them over, say, a paper diary or a calendar? First and foremost, I think it's really just convenience, right? I think when it comes to period tracking apps, for sure, it's convenience. It's being able to like have someone else do all of that math for you or just track your period. I can really count on one hand the number of times I've picked up like a physical pen to write something down. Getting pregnant can be a very complicated process as well, right? Having some service that is helping you through that process is it's very helpful. Um, and I and I don't doubt the utility of these apps at all. And it makes it easier for them to track their cycles and ovulation cycles and things like that, so that they have a higher chance of getting pregnant. But there's also people who use it because they want to make sure that they can plan around their periods. Some people have incredibly inconvenient periods, both in terms of the symptoms and the length and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, there are particular period apps, or at least just apps targeted toward women's health care that focus on or pitch itself as the sex and lifestyle app. This is Eve by Glow, the hottest women's health and sex app around. Here are the times you won't have your period, so you can go have sex. On all your lady health needs. It's your sex life, your control. Get it, girl, and get Eve by Glow. Right, and period tracking apps are part of what people might have heard referred to as femtech, basically technology created for women. How much of a market is that now, and and how important to these tech companies are female users? So it's a pretty big market. I think just a a couple of years ago, there were reports that there was about a billion dollars of investment being poured into like femtech, so women's health technology. We can put people on the moon. Why does a woman not know which day she can become pregnant? What if we could collect enough data, put it on our smartphones, and it would be an incredibly empowering tool for us to have so, and I think that's estimated to grow and balloon to 50 billion in the next couple of years. The opportunity here is very massive um, and not for the reasons that, you know, per- perhaps the altruistic reasons that women hope for, right? It's not like, oh, suddenly they're like, oh, wait, there's this this demand from this sector of the economy that we've just not really been responding to. And we really want to make sure women feel serviced. But at this point, the technology industry is largely, if not entirely, reliant on data as its bottom line. Data is everything for the big tech companies and for the small tech companies. And the more targeted that data is, the more valuable it is to advertisers. And so if you're creating this new crop of companies that already have a targeted user base, you can provide that information and data much more easily to advertisers. And then they can sell products directly to that particular demographic or that particular individual, depending on how much data they're getting from those apps. Unless the app you're using has a subscription service, which I'm sure there are some of them, but the the primary way you can probably bank on a free app uh, making money is through sharing your data. (laughs) 
and some period tracking apps ask their users for a lot of detail. From what kind of vitamin do you take, your weight, exercise, what do you drink, mm -hmm. right? How much do you drink, your sleep. Questions like how is your digestive system? What is your weight? How is your skin? How is your hair? Here you complete information about all relevant activities, including whether you exercised or smoked and whether you're taking any medication. So that's a tricky thing that happens with the, the amount of data they collect is that we don't always know what they're going to be using the data for. And the reason we don't know is that they probably don't know either. Eva Bloom Dumonte is a privacy expert who's carried out research on period tracking apps. Often one thing you hear about quite a lot is app developers saying that, you know, it's worth collecting way more data because then we'll figure out later on if this data might prove useful at a later point. Yet a lot of those menstruation apps are collecting data about not just about your menstruation cycle, but crucially also about your sexual life, how often do you have sexual intercourses, whether it's protected or not. Uh, there will be all sorts of health data about the medication you're taking, whether you smoke, how much you drink. We also had an app that was looking at masturbation habit. The pretense is building a profile of you as a user and the promise that you're going to be offered a targeted service, like the right kind of recommendation for you at the right time of the month. In your research, you looked at how people who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant are particularly targeted by advertisers. How do these apps facilitate that? I've come across apps that when you open them, the very first question they will ask you is, why are you using these apps? Is it for because you're trying to get pregnant or is it for purely sort of period tracking. So you answer this first question and eventually the app, regardless of how you answer, is exactly the same. Your experiences as a user will be identical. But the point is that the most important information, the most important data points they can collect about you is that very question, is the very question of, are you trying to get pregnant or not? And the reality is that when you're pregnant, when you're about to have a baby, your consumer habits completely change. You're at a point of your life where your purchasing habits haven't been settled yet. You're going to buy more things because you're going to start having more mouths to feed. So for advertisers, you become the perfect target because your purchasing habits aren't set yet. I suppose it makes sense to ask, do you want to get pregnant? In the sense that by understanding your cycle and when you're ovulating, you know, that, that could be useful to you in that aim. But you mentioned that some of these apps also ask people for details like when they last masturbated. Why is that? So one of the apps that we looked at that was collecting this kind of information is that they would create media content, little short articles, yeah. and they would ask you, oh, do you want to read this piece, this little article? And so if you entered anything about masturbation, you will have an article popping up about masturbation and its health benefits, for example. But whether this content is created to justify the data sharing is, is a different question. I can imagine as well that this data, these huge data sets collected from millions of women across the world, potentially, could be put to helpful use in medical research. Is that happening at the moment? We see quite a few apps that are sharing the data with researchers. 
Now, there are concerns about this. One of them is that some apps don't give you the opportunity to opt out of this. They, by default, share the data. They argue that because the data that they're sharing is anonymized, uh, you don't have to give your consent. Personally, I think one of the fundamental rule of ethics around scientific research is the consent of people who take part in scientific research. The other thing that I think is possibly of concern with sharing this information is that when you share these data sets that are completely anonymized, you miss out on a lot of potential data points. You might miss out on the context around ethnicity or around the social context of the people whose data you're processing and researching because you don't have access directly to, to the users. Joanna, for years, you and other technology reporters and data privacy experts have been warning that there are potential risks in how the data that we put into these apps is being shared. In the US, something happened that made those concerns more urgent. The Supreme Court has reached a decision on the landmark Roe v. Wade case. There is no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion. The court's ruling is reverberating far beyond the country's borders. And now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned and abortion has been made illegal or heavily restricted in at least 12 states, experts are worried that app providers could share that data with the police. As states tighten their abortion laws, prosecutors could go after people seeking an abortion or those helping them by subpoenaing data linked on fertility apps, period trackers and on Internet searches. How realistic is it that law enforcement agencies would request that data? It's been very realistic for a very, very long time. It's a huge problem in the tech industry. I will say that law enforcement are more likely to target the bigger tech companies like Google, like Facebook and Apple, which those companies also have healthcare data. But they're more likely to target those companies because they're so much bigger, right? And they have just so, so, so much data, right? People use Google for everything. They use Gmail, they use Google search, they use Google photos, right? Google maps, all of these things. And all of those things can, are connected to your particular account. So law enforcement is able to request a lot of that information through subpoenas and warrants. Um, even in states that have really strong and strict privacy laws like California, they can't really limit law enforcement requests that much. I mean, take the immigration issue, for instance, right? There are states where there are sanctuary laws that prohibit or limit the amount of cooperation that state and local agencies can do with the federal immigration agency ICE. And yet, in order to get around those laws, ICE has just been buying data from data brokers in those states instead of working with tech companies there or with police there. So there isn't currently a federal privacy law on the books that protects user data, consumer data at all. There is a bill that is making its way through Congress that people are really optimistic about, but that's not yet become law. So there isn't really a ton of restrictions on what tech companies can do with your user data, and certainly not in the states where abortion has been banned. And do the tech companies have to comply with that request? 
they absolutely can say and just push back on it. They can try to narrow the scope of the data that they're asking for, and they can try to just delay it. We've already seen a case where in Nebraska, police got personal data or sought personal data from Facebook in order to help them press charges against a mother and daughter for allegedly illegally seeking an abortion or conducting an abortion. According to the documents, the social media giant released the private messages confirming the procedure. In those messages, the mother instructs her daughter on how to take abortion pills. And the subpoena had nothing to do. It didn't say anything about abortions. It didn't say anything about health data. What instead they looked for were their Facebook messages. And they used that to help them press charges. So when police are are seeking this data, they're not necessarily mentioning abortion at all. And in fact, they're not actually looking at health data at all. They are just looking at anything that would help them press charges against anyone generally, right? But also in the case of the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, um, in the states where it's illegal, they're looking for information that could help them charge someone with seeking an illegal abortion. Um, and that could be you searching for a, an abortion clinic, but it could also be just you liking someone's post, um, you posting a picture, you messaging someone about not wanting to be pregnant. One of the pitfalls of really caring about our privacy in this very specific context of, of abortion and having people care about it for the first time in this particular context is that we are narrowly focusing all of our efforts on protecting healthcare data. But that actually is not the only thing that can make you vulnerable at this point. How did Facebook defend that decision? Their defense was that there was nothing in the subpoena that said anything about this investigation being related to an abortion. But activists had been warning many, many times that this is it just is not going to come in this sort of neatly packaged subpoena um, that says, hey, this is an abortion investigation because there's probably some sort of realization, right, among law enforcement agencies that tech companies may say no to those subpoenas. If they're able to just make those subpoenas and warrants pretty general, then tech companies are really not going to be motivated to fight them if it's just a sort of general warrant. As you've been reporting on these very worrying cases of data being passed over to the police. Have you found at all that people are becoming more careful about where they're leaving digital footprints? Yeah, because as a surveillance reporter, and I I do cover tech, but I'm specifically focused on surveillance. One of my frustrations is that it's extremely difficult to get people to care about privacy and and, and, and surveillance. And part of that is they just feel like it's not going to affect them. I I hear a lot of, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, then why does it matter? Or there's sort of just a complacency like, well, all tech companies collect our data. So why does it matter? Like, we're not going to just not use tech. There's sort of a different conversation happening right now post Roe v. Wade because it's starting to affect a larger group of people. I mean, surveillance historically has disproportionately targeted groups who live on the margin, disenfranchised groups, black and brown people, particularly black and brown women. And so this wider group of people at this point have just 
for the first time felt vulnerable to sort of the the long arm of law enforcement, right? Like tech companies at this point sort of act as an outsourced uh, surveillance arm of law enforcement in many ways. And for the first time, one of the behaviors of a larger group of people is suddenly criminalized in many states in the U.S. And now a a lot of that information can can be used against them. Eva, we're talking about people leaving data all over the internet, which most of us do every day. I mean, is there anything specific that people in the US should be doing, you know, if they were particularly concerned about that now? Well, we'll have to wait and see, first of all, what the legal situation is going to be, because one of the key things will be, will there be state that will be criminalizing going to another state to get abortion? Because if that happens, then yes, we're very likely to see courts trying to really go after data of people seeking an abortion into into a different state. And that will be beyond, you know, merely the question of menstruation apps. It will be, are you using an airplane, your transport data? How do you map your journey, which hotel you're going to? This is all this information that they will try to go after to prove that you've traveled abroad to get an abortion. So one of the key things will be the role of Planned Parenthood and organizations offering abortion services, abortion clinics, will have to do a lot of hard work to make sure that they protect their users. And I think we really need to see civil society organizations in the US stepping up to support abortion clinic to make sure that they know how to educate their users about how to safely get in touch with them, how to safely travel to them. So the key question for a lot of people listening to this is going to be, should I delete my period tracking app? What would you say? I would say, ask yourself, which state do you live in? And pay attention to the legislation of the state you're in. If you're in California or in New York State, you're probably safe. Like, there's probably not much you should be worrying about. If you're in a state that where abortion is is already illegal or is likely to become illegal, or if you fear that they might even make it illegal to travel to another state, I would say think about which app you're using. What are the privacy, policy to privacy setting of the of these apps? Maybe delete the app that you have if you don't trust it. Try and either go for an app that stores the data locally. If you can do without an app, maybe think about considering deleting your app. But I would say there is many questions you should ask yourself first before you immediately delete the app. Coming up, are data laws helping to protect people using tracking apps? Eva, you've talked about the risks in the US at the moment. There are also countries in Europe where abortion is illegal or heavily restricted. How does EU law stand in terms of protecting people's data in comparison to the US? At the moment, the UK and the EU generally have basically the strongest legal framework, data protection framework in the world with GDPR. One of the 
key aspects of it is that it really gives the users control over their data. So through data subject access requests, uh, the user can request their data, can see how much data is being collected about them, uh, what's the data that's collected, but also it can, the users can do a request for erasures. Uh, they can ask questions and the companies have to answer those questions. And they can also ask that the data be corrected. Now, this legal framework is specific to the UK and in the EU. The US, unfortunately, doesn't have any, any regulation of, of the sort. It's also worth remembering that in the UK at the moment, we're going through the second reading parliament of a new data protection bill. So it might be that the very good protection that we have at the moment could soon become much weaker in the UK. Is there a likelihood of that or are we likely to be keeping that same sort of framework? There is a risk uh, that it will happen, actually, that this is one of the key things that will be debated in Parliament is the question of adequacy and whether the new data protection bill, as the current government is trying to pass it, will be fit for purpose for uh, the European Union. Because if it's not, then we'll lose adequacy and the right to freely share data with the European Union. Essentially, to put it in very simple terms, this would be like no deal Brexit for data protection. So some of the rights that I was describing around being able to turn to a company and ask them to release and share your data well, it might no longer be so easy to do under, under the new UK data protection bill. Thinking about women in the US again, if the app that they're using is based in the EU, will they also be protected under GDPR? Uh, if a US court makes a request to a European company, the, the European, a European company would most likely uh, have, to, have to comply. And again, the might be able to challenge it in court, uh, but whether they'll have the capacity to do it is uh, is a separate question. Whether they will have even the, the legal know-how to fight it is a, is a different question. So the fact that a company is based in Europe does not protect the users from court requests that might be done from the US. And I suppose if people are concerned about it, is, is the real fail-safe way to get around this just to use a, a pen and paper diary? This is where I go back to one of the, the pitfalls of the discourse around menstruation apps is that for a lot of people, these apps are an invaluable services. I wouldn't want to tell anyone who is relying on these apps to make their life better and easier. No, you need to delete it and go back to pen and paper. I think we need to be also quite compassionate with those app users and understand why they're using it. Also, we don't know what the legal reality will be in the future. At the end of the day, what I'd like is a situation that we might have, like with food safety, for example, when you step into a supermarket, you can buy any products within the sort of use by date and you can eat it and know it's not going to and know that it's not going to poison you. And this is where we need to get with technology. We shouldn't have to worry about the apps that we're downloading when we, we're using our phones. We should have the confidence that they're not going to turn against us and collect data that could land us in jail. Eva, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Eva Bloom-Dumonte, 
and Joanna Buya, whose reporting on tech and cybersecurity you can read at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Harim Khan and sound designed by Solomon King. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. This is The Guardian. <laughs>